This is Carrie Gephardt, and you're listening to Five for Fruit, your five-minute fix for Reformed theology and practice. What we do here is go back, 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 back. You're now listening to a special edition episode of Five for Fruit with Carrie Gephardt. On special edition episodes, Carrie interviews authors, fellow podcasters, believers, and just about anyone you can think of. And they have wonderful discussions, but it takes longer than five minutes. No! 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 So now you have been warned, but I pray you'll listen, learn, and grow. Now, DJ, hit that track. I know it's deep, but when you keep your mind is dense. Yeah. Jesus spoke God a man, 200%. Yeah, fully divine, fully human. Introduce it, the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union. I know it's deep, but when you keep your mind is dense. Yeah. Jesus spoke God a man, 200%. Yeah, fully divine, fully human. All right, welcome to a special edition episode of Five for Fruit. You've heard the warning. This is going to be longer than five minutes, so I don't want to hear anybody complain, okay? Nobody complain about this. What we're doing here is over the last few episodes, I've talked about how being a Reformed Christian means that we're creedal. It means that we're Catholic in the little C sense, that we as Reformed Christians affirm all of the orthodox doctrines that the first five councils of the early church uh, came to conclusions on. Uh, And this is important because in the Reformation, it was extremely essential that the Reformers say, no, look, we're not starting a new church. This is the Reformation of the church. And in order to establish that, the, uh, the reformers had to say, look, look, we affirm the creeds of the early church. We affirm orthodox, Trinitarian, Christological doctrines. And uh, there's so much that we can unpack from that topic. But uh, as, as because of the model of, of my, the format of my podcast show, uh, we've only had five minutes to really uh, hit the hit the essentials or what at least I think are the essentials when it comes to uh, Orthodox Christian doctrine. And so I thought it would be helpful for for you guys, the listeners, the audience, if we brought somebody on and talked a little bit more in depth about the importance of not only understanding that these are the creedal conf- uh confessing beliefs and doctrines that the church had to come to conclusions on, uh, but the history surrounding that and the, in the environments and the, in the circumstances that brought those things about. And who else would I bring on to talk about these things except for Tony Arsenal, one of the duo from the reformed brotherhood and blogger extraordinaire at reformedarsenal.com. Tony, how are you doing tonight, man? I'm doing great. You are far too kind. What do you mean far too kind? Well, you're just so generous with your compliments. So you, you're making me blush here, Carrie. I got to admit. Well, I'm trying to make you sound really, really awesome so that people think I've got this really important person on my podcast. Yeah, it's just little old me up in New Hampshire. <laughs> but you know what? I, I did ask you to come on because you are, I think, uh, at least from my perspective, a very knowledgeable person when it comes to these things and somebody that I, I would say holds very strong convictions about the importance of these things. 
And that's something that's lacking, I think, in a lot of areas of, you know, American or Christian evangelicalism. Uh, and so kind of what I want to do with you tonight is uh, if you could maybe just um, set us up from like maybe a 30,000 foot uh, flyover of of the importance of all those, you know, first five councils of the early church, you know, and if you're going through a conversation and you kind of mention something or talk about something, I may say, hey, tell me more about that or, or interact with you on some points that, uh, you know, we have some similar passions or whatnot. So take it away, man. Sure. So I think um, one thing that's really important to understand kind of coming out of the New Testament era is there are there are basically two views that Protestants hold of church history. Right. There's um, what you might call the immediate dark age view where there's the apostles and maybe we have a few generation of faithful Christians. And then we plunge into sort of this like era of darkness and, you know, people start like sacrificing children to the devil, like right after the apostles die or something crazy like that. And then all of a sudden, you know, this Augustinian monk comes out of nowhere in the Reformation and it's like, let there be light again. And there's almost like a de novo brand new creation of the church again in, in 15 or in, um, you know, at the reformation, right. The other view, um, of the church is a much more optimistic view where we have kind of a development of doctrine starting after the apostles and moving forward. Um, and you know, there's also the Catholic view, right. Where everything's great throughout the whole history of the church and there's never any problems. Right. As long as you could trace back to the apostles, you're good. Exactly. And, and what I want to try to reinforce is that that first view, that dark age view just really doesn't bear up with history. Now it's, it is the case that there was sort of a gradual decline in faithfulness and theology and, um, biblical fidelity that really did start, um, even in the pages of the new Testament. Right. So that's right. kind of the first errors. We start seeing some of these errors creep in even before the apostles have died. So it's not as though the New Testament era was some golden age where everything was perfect. There is actually um, a reason why, you know, Paul wrote those letters. Exactly. But in the same <laughs> in the same time, there was never a point where the church did not exist and and good faithful biblical Christians were not a vibrant voice in the church. To as long as you believe in, degree. right. As long as you believe in Pentecost and the fact that the Holy Spirit's a real thing. Exactly. I mean, Christ said that, that the, the gates of hell would never prevail over his church. And if we believe that, then we have to say that the church was real and existed and was alive throughout the all of church history. So what we see coming out of the immediate era after the apostles is sort of an era of confusion um, mm -hmm. and not, not necessarily of theological confusion confusion in the actual era. But what we see is that we just don't have a lot of documentation from that era. Right. And so we have to draw some inferences about what was being believed. And and in point of fact, there are some instances we, we don't really have a great idea of what they believed. We have a couple representative samples, right? We have like Justin Martyr, we have Tertullian, we have a couple people from the sort of the turn of the third century. Clement right, of Rome. Clement of Rome, right? We have we have different um, we have all sorts of different documents and this era is called the sub apostolic era. Um, and I, I actually have sort of an issue calling it the sub apostolic era. <laughs> I might want to call it like the early patristic era or right. something like that. Um, the kind of classic term is the Antonicene fathers, meaning those before the council of Nicaea. Correct. And, um, 
contrary to what you might hear from like a Bart Ehrman or an Elaine Pagels or something like that, it's not as though there was all these competing orthodoxies and then just the loudest voice went out and became the orthodoxy. What we actually see throughout this era, um, if you read someone like Tertullian, who actually got himself into some trouble later in life, but when you yeah. read his work, particularly one called Against Praxeus, which was kind of his main opponent, sort of his most famous work, um, at least from a like a purely theological perspective, um, you see basically an orthodox doctrine of the Trinity all throughout. We have language in Irenaeus, who is also very early, writing around the same time as um, Tertullian, sort of the 180s to 220s range, somewhere in there, um, who articulates basically the doctrine that we're going to see come to fruition and crystallization at Chalcedon 250 years later. So this theology was present and was active and was the dominant voice throughout the early church, whereas Elaine Pagels... Um, at Harvard or um, Bart Ehrman down at um, UNC Chapel Hill, these different voices want to say, no, there was just a bunch of different voices and there was lots of different thought and you throw some Gnostics in there and, and really there was no settled orthodoxy. Well, that just really isn't the case. And what you see particularly with the councils um, is the councils are a response to a specific teaching or event in the church. Right. So we we want to think that the church sat down and wrote like a systematic theology right after, you know, John died. And that's just not what happened. Um, we don't actually see systematic theology as kind of a, a discipline we would recognize as systematic theology, you know, until like the 1300s, like Peter Lombard, um, Anselm right. of Canterbury a little bit. Um, but most of these people didn't even write systematically in, in any way we would recognize. The process is organic. Exactly, exactly. And so what happens is um, in probably the, the 315 era, right, the turn of the 4th century, we start to hear rumbles from a voice in Alexandria named Arius. And this this voice, Arius was a presbyter. Uh, he may have come from Libya, but he was trained in Antioch. And we don't have to get into it, but there's a lot of discussion about Alexandrian versus Antiochian um, Christology. And I remember that. I remember that in Christian history class. And some, history of, class. some of those um, kind of uh, hermeneutic tools to try to divide up things are a little bit overblown. But by and large, we have these two schools of thought. There's an Antiochian school that tends to emphasize the humanity of Christ. Yeah. And there's an Alexandrian school that tends to emphasize the divinity of Christ to greater and lesser degrees in different figures. And Arius, who was trained in Antioch, comes to Alexandria, and he his theology mixes with the theology of Origen, who, if you study anything in early church history, is like the biggest figure. Um, right. It's not it's not an exaggeration, but I've heard it said that pretty much everything from Origen on in the Eastern Church is trying to figure out and and kind of rectify the errors that origin let creep in with his theology. That might be a little bit of an overstatement, but not by much. It doesn't help that he was very intelligent and a prolific writer. Exactly. And so origin, um, had this idea that, um, you know, he mixed his theology with platonic thought. And so he had this idea that all souls were eternal and the logos was just a, a soul that was perfectly unified with God. So you hear about the logos is not actually even the same, 
um, being as God. And so the Logos voluntarily separated from God to come to earth, and that's the incarnation in the mind of Air of origin. Well, Aries is trying to correct some of that, and what he does is he says, well, no, the Logos isn't an eternally existent thing. Nothing is eternally existent except God. So the Logos must be a creature. So he starts to teach this, right? He's a presbyter. Um, he has he might have been a deacon. You know, the sources are a little bit mixed on that. Exactly. But he has this idea, and he starts to teach it. And his uh, bishop, Alexander of Alexandria, which is an interesting kind of alliteration there, yeah. but his bishop tries to correct him. And unfortunately, Arius was, was kind of recalcitrant. He refused to be corrected. So this sparks a controversy that raged through the church. And as we come into the 325 era, what it, there's all sorts of political things happening with Constantine that we, we don't need to get into. But Constantine wanted to unify his empire, and the common thread throughout his empire was the Christian religion. He saw right. that it was everywhere, but he couldn't use Christianity in order to unify his, his empire because it, was, it had this infighting going on because of the Aryan controversy. Now, this is particularly in the East. The West never really dealt with Arianism in the same way until much, much later in church history. But the Eastern church, the Greek-speaking church, had this controversy raging. So Arius assembles this council. He calls for a council, and he kind of orders the bishops to figure it out. The The common narrative that, that um, Constantine kind of like declared the end result is not at all the case. Constantine recognized that he was not a theologian. He recognized that he was not equipped to do that. So he convened the council, and then he ratified the decision kind of by putting his stamp of approval on it. Right. So out of the Council of Nicaea comes the Creed of Nicaea, which is different than the Nicene Creed, which is what you might recite on a Sunday morning at church or yeah, what you that's might. That's not, yeah. It's the, the Creed of Nicaea is a truncated, shorter version of what we know as the Nicene Creed. And it really emphasizes the 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 radical sameness between the Father and the Son. So um, even more radical sameness than we would see um, in the, the Nicene Creed, which came around later, in that it actually, in some senses, didn't make the distinction between the Father and the Son clear enough. So they were so concerned, and this is another example of how this kind of theolo- theologizing is reactive. It's they reactive, seeing, yeah. Right. They were seeing that Arius had this radical distinction between the Father and the Son, and so they, they in some ways, overcorrected. Now, there was part of it that was just a linguistic limitation that the church would have to refine its language before it had the the philosophical linguistic tools to make these fine distinctions. And that would come over the next 50 years. So you would think that when they say Arius is wrong, he is condemned, anyone who agrees with him will be excommunicated from the church, you'd think that would settle it. But it didn't. And so this controversy, the Arian controversy, continued to rage through the church through the next 50 years or so. Right. And And it seemed like there was a point, right, like a dark time in church history where everyone was Arian. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, it's, it's funny because people will say, um, well, Constantine, you know, he, he decided the Council of Nicaea. And sort of one of the weird quirks of history is that part of the reason that the Arian controversy continued for so long is because Constantine was the one who invited Arius back into the church. Constantine and his sons particularly were the ones that were actually saying like, well, I don't really get what the big deal is. And we're allowing that theology to keep going by preventing the church in some ways from kind of flushing it out. And so as it started to grow, the Arians gained political power. And so it became expedient for people to be Arians. 
Well, eventually, through the work of some bishops in uh, Turkey and Asia Minor um, called the Cappadocian Fathers, they started to do work also working in pneumatology. So alongside the controversy of Christology, which in reality it's a Trinitarian controversy and exactly. talking about. It has to do with the, the identity of God. The experience of the Son causes right. us to think in Trinitarian language. Right. It's centered on the Son in terms of who are we discussing? Who are we trying to figure out the nature of? But the, the context of the first ecumenical council at Nicaea and the second ecumenical council at Constantinople really was identifying the Trinity, taking this new experience of, of the Son and then also of the Holy Spirit and saying, we, we affirm that these three are God, but we don't exactly know what that means. So they're wrestling with this. And alongside the Arian controversy, there's a controversy brewing uh, that gets called, this is the best name for anything in church history, the Pneumatomachian controversy. And what this is, is there's a group called the Spirit Fighters. Yeah. uh, And they fought against the idea that the Spirit was divine. And so all of the same reasoning that had been applied by people like Athanasius and his successor, Didymus the Blind, who was his bishopric successor in in, um, Alexandria, but also kind of his theological successor. He carried on the work he was doing. And then also the Cappadocian Fathers, they applied all the logic that had been used to identify the Son as truly God and yet distinct somehow from the Father to the Holy Spirit. And so in three in three eighty one at Constantinople, this com- this second ecumenical council is called, and they finally lock it down. And the Arian Arians didn't disappear after that, but they never really rose to the prominence um, and to the influence that they had up until that point. And it was because of this this specificity of the language. In the exactly. Creed. Right. And so one of the issues that you run into with the Creed of Nicaea is that it says anyone who says that the son is of a different substance or person as the father. Right. It says usia or hypostasis, which is the Greek terms for substance and person. Right. And what they're getting at there is those words share a linguistic overlap. So the Cappadocians and Athanasius really spent a lot of energy invested in defining exactly what we mean. So the term usia came to describe the way that God is one. And the term hypostasis came to describe how we understand the diversity within God to function. So there are three hypostases and there's one usia, and that's how we look at it. Usia is the unity of God. Hypostases are the diversity of God or the persons of God. So being in persons. Right, exactly. So after we come out of the Council of Constantinople in 381, we have the Nicene Creed. And so this acts as a sort of a test of orthodoxy, a measure of orthodoxy, and really does, in a, in a lot of ways, unify the church. So we've established now that the, the Son and the Spirit are to be worshipped and glorified along with the Father. They're one in substance, truly God, you know, light of light, very God of very God, all of the language that we see in the Nicene Creed. And so that leads us to a controversy now coming into the 400s. Um, called the Nestorian controversy. Mm. So Nestorius was a teacher, a bishop in Constantinople. He was actually, I think he was the archbishop of Constantinople. And he, um, he took this language and said, well, if, if Christ is God and man, then we have to understand how that works. Exactly. And alongside of this became, uh, was a, was a linguistic issue happening about the term theotakos, which for some reason has been like a really big, point of discussion in reform online circles lately. I'm not sure why it seems like it comes up every 
couple of months that we have to hammer this out. Yeah, it's just the aversion to anything Catholic. That's what it is. Yeah, I think it's that a- drives a lot of it. I mean, some of it is well-reasoned arguments, and we can we can talk about that a little bit. Some of it is well-meaning arguments, um, but some of it is just unnecessary quibbling about terminology. Right. Which is like the church's MO for the last 2,000 years is is sometimes unnecessary quibbling about terminology. But it really comes down to language. I mean, exactly. I think something that we have to recognize is um, Christians are a people of words. Right. That's something that's very different from just about every other religion on earth. Right. I mean, Islam is also a very linguistic based religion, but we literally say that our God is word. Right. Our God is the logos. Right. And so the way that we use language and the way that we use words and God is his primary means of revelation. And for the Christian, his his most perfect and and complete means of revelation is the written word. So we should be cautious with how we use our words. So, yes, we can quibble over terms meaninglessly sometimes, but more often than not, these fine distinctions actually make a difference. Exactly. So we come into um, into this era where there's this phrase theotokos, which means God bearer or mother of God, and it's applied to Mary. And there were some um, popular veneration cults surrounding Mary that were utilizing this term, but it's not really the case that this term drove that veneration. It actually was kind of the other way around, that there was already this veneration, and then they started to appropriate this term to elevate Mary even further. And... What Nestorius wanted to do is he wanted to say, well, no, if we say that Mary gave birth to God, then we're saying that God had a beginning. So we should say instead that Mary is the Christ bearer or is the mother of Christ. And there's some disagreement as to whether Nestorius actually taught that Christ was two persons or some sort of other position. I actually think he probably taught something more along the lines of um, that Christ was somehow a duplex person in a way that is too close to two persons. But I don't think he actually affirmed two persons. But there were definitely followers of his that did. Right. And so coming into this era, a, a theologian named Cyril of Alexandria, and that's another common theme, is that for whatever reason, the Alexandrian theologians are the ones that really are on the side of orthodoxy, which is sort of ironic considering that Origen was sort of the fountainhead of Alexandrian theology. Right. It's an Athanasius from Alexandria too. Athanasius, Alexander of you know of Alexandria, um, all of these people are coming out of Alexandria, and so Cyril pushes back and he says, "No, if Christ is two persons, then we don't have a genuine incarnation." Right. And what ends up happening is Christ is a figure who shows us how to how to bring ourselves to God, not. Uh, someone who comes, not God who comes to rescue us. Mm-hmm. And that's a key turn is that all of these heresies um, end up distorting our understanding of what Christ does in the incarnation and atonement. His person, right? if you get his person wrong, you get his work wrong. Exactly. And and that's, um, I mean, that's across the board. And that's where we see cults like Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, um, one is Pentecostals in many ways. They turn very quickly into a workspace religion because the the Christ that they have is either a creature, and in Jehovah's Witness theology, a creature who shows us a unique way to get back to God, um, or in Mormonism, is God but had to become God, and so he shows us how to become God, and there's very works-driven stuff there. In one is Pentecostalism, we see some sort of paradoxical, strange things happening where we get to the same place. Um, so all of the cults end up distorting 
uh, Christology, and in the process of distorting Christology, they distort his work, right? Christology is is not just the person of Christ, but it's the person and work of Christ. Right. And that's because those two are connected. And so the Heidelberg Catechism says uh, he must be God because only God can bear our sins and survive, but he must be man because man is the only person who can who can have, you know, forgive sins for the person, so... Exactly. I did a really bad job of that, so no, no, don't grade good. me on that. But that's what the Heidelberg Catechism teaches. It, it teaches <laughs> the importance of understanding Christ as God and man, God-man. Right. And um, so we come into um, 431, and this controversy had come to a head. And again, we have a, an ecumenical council called, and this is the Council of Ephesus. Now, there's all sorts of really interesting political intrigue that happens about the Council of Ephesus. Um, I took a patristic history course, and it was... Depressing, but also sort of engaging to see how, you know, we want to think these theological controversies are, you know, wise men of God getting in a room and hammering out the theological facts. But there's so much more to the story in in almost every case that we have to understand in its whole context. But more or less what happens at the Council of um, Ephesus is that Cyril is acting as a prosecutor. And Cyril was a, a shrewd man. He was probably a pretty wicked guy in, in the, the sense of he was spiteful and he did underhanded things to get his point across. But his theology was correct. And so um, God uses crooked sticks to draw straight lines all the time. Exactly. And so we shouldn't look at Cyril and say, well, look at this. There's a really good chance that Cyril had people assassinated that were going to <laughs> vote for Nestorius' side. <laughs> okay. And so he tipped the scales by getting people who were going to vote on Nestorius' side killed. There's a pretty good chance that that's going to happen or that that happened. Um, but that doesn't change the fact that, that Cyril was right. And so after the Council of uh, Ephesus, there was a short period of peace, and a, a monk named Eutychius arose. Oh. And Eutychius, um, Eutychius was believed that he was arguing in the tradition of Cyril. And even right. though Cyril himself tried to correct him, Eutychius argued that the the there's a single person who is the son, and the son takes on a human nature, but that nature blends with the divine nature. And yeah. so the analogy he used was the idea of a drop of vinegar in the ocean. So technically, you drop one drop of vinegar in the ocean, and it changes the chemical makeup of the ocean. But that change is so imperceptible that it might as well not have happened. And so that's how he conceived of the incarnation, is that there's the divine nature was infinite, and the human nature is finite. And so, yes, the human nature was taken by the sun, but it was so minuscule that, in effect, we have... Um, a new hybrid uh, hybrid nature that is mostly divine nature and a little bit of human nature. Right. And so um, this led us to finally kind of the culmination of the Christological controversy, or at least part of the culmination. And that brings us to the Council of Chalcedon in 451. And out of the, the uh, Council of Chalcedon in 451, which you uh, did a great episode on the Chalcedonian definition, we have this formula that clearly lays out um, the way that the, the two natures of Christ interact with each other, right? There's this, this, this series of four negations in the middle. They're, they're not confused, they're not mingled, and they're also not separated and they're not divided, right? And so scholars look at these four negations as kind of bumpers around Christology. But I think there's actually a more fundamental structure to the Chalcedonian definition. There's the repeated phrase, one person. And so it talks about how Christ is is the son of Mary, the son of the Theotokos, 
and one in the same Christ is the Son of God, begotten of the, of the Father in eternity past, one in the same Christ, begotten or born of the Virgin Mary. And that one in the same language is throughout. So on one sort of axis, we have the unity of Christ's person. And then on a different axis, we have the unity of natures in a way that they're not mixed. So the strict preservation of two distinct natures that are not confused with each other and the strict preservation of a single uh, divine person who took on a human nature. Right. And that gives us the categories to speak of Christ in a way that's orthodox it, it, in a way that makes sense. Right. So that's absolutely. So, so even even in the category of, you know, Theotokos, God bearer. Right. Well, well, how are you speaking of Mary being the God bearer? Well, you're saying uh, that Mary gave birth to uh, Christ, who, according to his divine nature, is God, and according to his human nature, is born of Mary. Exactly. And that that's, for Reformed theology particularly, that is a vital distinction. And this... There, I don't know if you have listeners from other traditions or not, but they're gonna like kick and scream and throw stuff across the room when I say this. But <laughs> I think I think the Reformed tradition, as far as I understand um, what was happening in the Council of Chalcedon, the Reformed tradition really is the only tradition that properly preserves the Chalcedonian formula, and the reason for that, um, which you know this isn't a Reformation discussion, but look, coming into the Reformation. The primary dispute between Zwingli and Luther, the one thing they couldn't agree on was the nature of the Lord's Supper. And that all boiled down to Zwingli saying, no, 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 Luther, if, if Christ is present at every, at every Mass, then his human nature has become omnipot- or om- omnipresent. Right, and exactly. He, his human nature can't become omnipresent because that's a violation of Chalcedon. And that's why and Calvin Luther, said... Christ has a body. He still has the same human body, and that human body is sitting on the throne in heaven. Exactly. And so uh, Reformed theology is kind of unique in that I think it really does preserve that distinction without mingling. So Roman Catholic theology, Lutheran theology, both want to affirm a real bodily presence in the, the Eucharist. And so they have to do all sorts of things, right? The, the idea of ubiquity, that Christ's body can be multiplied and present right. in multiple places at one time. Um, the you know Roman Catholic Church hasn't, as far as I know, hasn't really reflected all that much on that, but their theology leads to the same place. Um, the Eastern Orthodox tradition, I think, unfortunately, because of the Seventh Ecumenical Council, which we're not going to talk about, um, has distorted um, the relationship between natures such that um, we can now image Christ. Um, properly, and and that's a problem because you're you're only imaging his human nature, which is an artificial division between the natures. Then, so most people look at the Council of Chalcedon as kind of the final statement in Christology, but it wasn't. Um, so often, Reformed thinkers stop at 451, and we don't progress to the Fifth Ecumenical Council. Bring and us in because I didn't do that. <laughs> right, the Fifth Ecumenical Council is really important. Um, because especially with some of the d- debates that are going on right now and things like the, the eternal functional subordination debates, um, this whole thing with Tim Keller about, um, the divine wrath and Christ learning what it's like not to be loved by the father. Just Google it guys. Just Google right? it. I mean, Keller, Keller clarified a little bit and his, his way of thinking is probably falling in line with reformed orthodoxy, but his way of speaking definitely wasn't clear in that sense. Once again, the importance of language. Right. And so the Fifth Council, and I'm not as familiar with the history of the Fifth Council, but the Fifth Council comes together, 
And they're, they're trying to decide whether it's proper to say that Christ has one will or whether Christ has two wills. And the, um, the, the real sort of philosophical metaphysical question is, does a will come from the person or does it come from a nature? Exactly. And so there's, there's all sorts of um, theologizing that happens. But really, they look at the Trinity and say, well, in the Trinity, there's only one will. And they, there can only be one will because if there's a plurality of wills, then there's a potential for discord. Even if we say it's only ever a hypothetical potential for discord, there's still a metaphysical potential that the persons could be at odds with each other. Right. Um, so three wills in agreement with each other is still division, right? That's still a division within the Godhead. Mm-hmm. And that that can't happen. And so they reason and God's say... God's without well, if, parts, so... Exactly. They reason and say... That if if the Trinity has one nature and the Trinity has one will, then the the will must come from the nature. It can't come from the person because if there was three persons and the will came from the person, then there would be three wills. But since there's only one will, there's one nature, there's only then then will comes from nature or will is a part of your nature. So then they apply that reasoning to the hypostatic union to Christ and say, well, Christ has two natures. Mm. He must also have two wills. And that's why it's important is because if going back to the Council of Constantinople, one of the issues was that if Christ is not truly human, then whatever he did not assume, whatever of humanity he didn't take upon himself, he also did not restore or heal. Right. So if he didn't have a human will, then the human will is not restored. And we know he had a divine will because he had to have had something before the incarnation. So so it's important to our salvation. Some of this seems like sort of meaningless speculation, but if we lose the genuine what if we lose the idea that Christ has a genuine human will, then he's not a genuine human and our wills are not redeemed. And our salvation is lost. Because if our wills are not redeemed, then what's the point? Right. The noetic effects of the of the fall still exist. Exactly. And then we would just fall again at some point. If, if our wills remain fallen, then we are destined to sin again at some point. Um, so that kind of brings us to the 30,000 foot view. And, and to summarize it, right, the first counsel is, is Jesus truly God? And the answer with a resounding yes. The second counsel is, is Jesus truly man? And is the Holy Spirit God? And they answer both of those with a resounding yes. The third counsel is, okay, is Christ one person who's truly God and truly man? Or is he two persons, one person's truly God, one person's truly man that are somehow fused together? And the third counsel is, all right, well, how many natures does he actually have then? And then the fifth counsel is, well, what what constitutes a nature? What is it that makes up Christ's person? Um, and how do we understand that? And that's really the summary of how we got to the orthodox doctrines of the council or of the Trinity and the incarnation. That's the historical account, more or less, of how we got there. That is amazing that you just did all that. And I guess what I would want to say is after after that, my question would be to all the people who who you know work themselves through all that that information and maybe some terminology that's uh, they're unfamiliar with or really trying to work through what would you say to someone who um who has that first view of church history like you talked about you know everything was horrible and then the reformation happened and then uh you know uh and then that's and everything's great now uh what's the importance of a christian a, a layperson you know, a congregational member understanding the 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 
process, the organic process of God by the Holy Spirit through his church in response to controversy and heresy in the church coming up with orthodoxy, establishing orthodoxy. What's the importance for somebody like that to really just encourage them to take the time to, to know those things, know their heritage? Sure. Yeah, so I'll, I'll answer that question in two ways. So the first one, just transparently, the reformers would disagree with you on every point to say that the church was somehow absent or hidden before that. So um, the Reformation was another example of the church responding to theological error, just like the councils were. Exactly. So if you get that wrong about church history, then you've got the Reformation wrong. So the, the view of that person is that Martin Luther comes... And he completely rejects everything that the church has ever taught. And he alone comes and he's the guy that's got the answer. And Martin Luther would slap you in the face and call you like a fart pooper or something like that. <laughs> because you that's just, he's like, are you kidding me? Of course I'm not leaving the church. Why would I do that? This is where the words of life are found. Right. This is where I, this is where I encounter Christ in the, in the Eucharist. Um, so the reformers would dismiss that view right out. And if your heroes are holding a view different than your holding, then you really need to reevaluate. The second um, way that I'll answer that is to tell a little bit of a personal story. So I, I came out of college um, with a passion for biblical studies, and um, I knew that I wanted to go to seminary. And I knew that seminary, uh, it was going to be easier to get into seminary and to do a program in church history than it was to do in biblical studies for a lot of reasons, primarily because I already, I already took Greek. I didn't want to take it again, but I knew I would have to. And so I, church history didn't have that same language requirement. They let me, in, they let me bring in the language that I had rather than retaking it. Why didn't I and get so, that program? I wanted that program. Not <laughs> so I, I chose, well, I ended up taking Greek again anyways, because oh, I didn't know well enough, but I didn't have to. And so I came in as a church history major and I thought, oh, I need to study church history. I don't, I don't know anything about church history. Well, before I got to Gordon-Conwell, which is where I finished my seminary degrees, I was at Bethel Seminary in St. Paul. And um, I, had, I had, through a series of events, kind of become acquainted with the Roman Catholic Church. And the Roman Catholic Church was kind of beckoning me, to be honest with you. And I had actually, at one point, had declared my intentions to convert. And oh, the wow. reason was because I bought into their narrative that they were the historical church that they were the ones that had the historical pedigree and that these, you know, reformers were these sort of upstarts. And I bought into the narrative that um, Martin Luther exploded on the scene with no historical precedent. And I either had to swallow the idea that Martin Luther was coming up with something brand new that was totally unheard of in the church, or I had to adopt the narrative that the Roman Catholic church was saying was that he was wrong. And I came dangerously close to adopting that. And it was the doctrines of grace, ultimately, that pulled me back from the brink. But there are so many Christians. It's really prominent, especially in reform circles, kind of ironically. It's so prominent right now for Protestants to be becoming Catholic. And a big part of that is because they don't understand church history. They don't see that if you look at Irenaeus, you have all of the seeds of what became covenant theology right there. Mm. Right. You've got you've got the covenant of works that Adam had a task to do. And if he would have fulfilled his task, he would have been granted with permanent, 
unchangeable, uh, eternal resurrection life. Now, calling it resurrection life is a little bit weird. We can talk about that some other time. But he would be given this permanent life. Well, that's the covenant of works right there. Exactly. But he failed. And so Christ came and became the second ha- second Adam, and he fulfilled that covenant, and he grants the blessings of that to his people. That's the covenant of grace right there. And it gets a little mass because technically we call Irenaeus recapitulation theory, and we don't call it covenant theology. But I, I, I've studied both, and I don't really see a difference. Right. Right. Or then we get to Athanasius, who... You know, um, there's a theory in or there's a theology in Reformed theology called the extra Calvinisticum. It's kind of this weird, obscure <laughs> theology. But extra Calvinisticum is a it was a pejorative term that basically the Lutherans were making fun of the, the Calvinists saying, well, you've got this little Calvinistic extra in Christ. And they're talking about the fact that the divine nature is not coterminous with the human nature. Right. Well, when trying to explain uh, how the incarnation works, Athanasius makes the exact same argument. So we have all of these these spots that you can look at if you study church history that it would be totally disingenuous to say are identical, right? I know I basically just said that about covenant theology. That's probably the one exception I would make is with Irenaeus, but there are substitution themes and penalty themes all over Athanasius, mm. but that doesn't mean he was arguing for penal substitution as it became even, even past the reformation is when penal substitution really came to flower. Right. Um, but all of the, all of the necessary ingredients were already there in the church. And so people like Luther and people like Calvin, Calvin more than Luther were reaching back into church history. And they were saying, you know what? The medieval church really is the dark age. The medieval church, by and large, has abandoned the biblical fidelity that it once had. But even if you just go back as far as Thomas Aquinas, there's all sorts of fruitful ground. Thomas Aquinas was more of a double predestinarian than John Calvin was. Yeah. Right. Thomas Aquinas argued for equal ultimacy, which we as the Reformed would say, whoa, 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 that's a little bit too far. Um, So you have to remember that everybody in the church, including our Reformed heroes, is a mixed bag. The early church, the medieval church, um, the patristic era, all of those people are fallen creatures affected by the noetic effects of the fall. And some of them are more or less correct, and some of them are more or less incorrect, but they're all a mixed bag. But if you look through the church, Carl Truman is, um, is known to say that if you want to find where the true church was, you look for the, the, the Trinitarian and Christological orthodoxy, and you look for the anti-Pelagianism. And Pelagianism was another controversy that was basically just works righteousness. Yeah. And anywhere that you see someone who is affirms Orthodox Christi- Christology, Orthodox Trinitarianism, and fights against Pelagianism, even if they don't fight hard enough in our mind, even if they don't go quite as far as we think they should, if they're rejecting Pelagius, that's where the true church is. Nobody's going to explicitly say, yeah, I'm a Pelagian, but there are a lot of people that basically adopt Pelagian views. So we have to, we have to look and see that and trust the Holy Spirit that he never let, he never let the church down. He never abandoned the church. Exactly. And when, when I started to sort of flirt with Rome, I felt like if I wanted to remain a Protestant, I had to believe that the Holy Spirit had abandoned the church. I bought that narrative. And it wasn't until I kind of I kind of said, like, I can't see how this would be grace. I can't see how the Roman Catholic Church is not affirming some form of Pelagianism. And I know I can't do that. That was when it finally brought me back. And that's when I got to Gordon Conwell and I started to dig into church history. And it sort of pulled me back from that. And it, it was seeing the fact that the church, the true church with the true gospel 
more or less pure, but the true gospel was present all through church history. Right. And and right? and the ability to say that that I'm part of the Catholic Church. And when I say Catholic Church, I mean the church that is that has been bought and purchased by Christ's blood, it is a real thing, and it is something that goes beyond denominational boundaries and and whatever can'ts, you know. And we affirm that, and the way that we are able to affirm that is um, is by looking at church history and say that belongs to us. Right. That's exactly that's, that belongs to us. And looking looking at the progress that that the, the true and faithful church has made and says and said. When they were when they were trying to work through these things, uh, and and deal with these controversies and these heresies, they came up with th- this is this is what we believe the Bible teaches. This is true Christian faith, uh, Trinitarian, Christological, and uh, you know anti works. And when you can see that, and you can say that that belongs to us, uh, you know Catholics, you don't own that. It's not yours. <laughs> um, then, then you have confidence in in the words of Christ when Christ said, "One, I will not leave you; I will not forsake you." But two, He right. said when He sent the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of John, He said, "I will send the Holy Spirit, and He will guide you into all truth." Exactly. That's a promise for the church. And, and when you look back at history, you can say Christ kept His promise. Christ keeps His promises. And I would hope that the people who are listening to this that that would drive them to worship uh, the God. Who, who through Christ established his church and is being, remaining faithful to his church and guiding his church uh, throughout history. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think we're good. I think we've, I think we've summarized everything. If you have something else you want to say... Yeah, let, let me give a couple recommendations for some good resources. Good. So um, if you're looking for kind of a good swath through the whole of church history, um, including post-Reformation history, which is a whole other fascinating historical area. But um, I would actually suggest um, Bruce Shelley, a book called Church History in Plain Language. Now, it is a monster. I listened to it on um, audiobook. You can get it on Audible. Uh, it's like 26 hours. Um, so it's it's a massive, massive book. Ain't nobody got time but for that, man. A, Ain't nobody got time he for does that. A, I listened to it at three times speed, and it it was crazy. Um, He does a great job of doing exactly what the book says. He takes complex church history, and he boils it down into everyday plain language. The flip side of that is that he he does um, kind of go over some of the nuances, and you have to. I mean, I went over some of the nuances today. Um, The alternative would be Justo Gonzalez has a book called The Story of Christianity. Um, It's about the same. uh, It's a little bit longer because it's two volumes. You can also get it on Audible. Um, Where Justo Gonzalez's book really excels is in the um, his understanding and exploration of the expansion of the Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church into South America, because that's his area of specialty. But the early church stuff that he does is pretty good, too. And if you're looking for a book to actually read rather than listen to, Zondervan has published a two-volume church history set that is very good, and it's just it's very cleverly titled Church History One and Church History Two. But they're short chapters; they're they're thorough enough for a, a kind of a 
say like if you're taking like a survey church history course in college, um, that is a good approach. And the last uh, resource I'll recommend is on Ligonier, um, on Renewing Your Mind with R.C. Sproul. On Saturdays right now, they're doing uh, W. Robert Godfrey's. Uh, it's like a 73-part church history lecture series, and they're they're publishing one every single Saturday. So it'll take like a year and a half to get through them all, but that is one of those ongoing um, daily resources. So if you want to get all of them right away, you just donate, I think, like five bucks is the minimum or whatever, and you can get the, the audio and DVD sent to you. So those are good resources if you're looking to just kind of get an idea of church history and sort of get a survey. But it is really important to understand church history because, as I said, this is our heritage. This is where we come from. And especially going into an era where we where the, the culture wants to disconnect from history, Right. We want to disconnect from linguistic basis of of law. We want to disconnect from what words used to mean. Everything is about right now. Everything's about me right now. Rooting ourselves in the historic trajectory of the church, in the creeds, in the confessions, in the the writings of the Puritans, in the writings of the early church fathers and the reformers, that will ground us to our faith in a way that um, kind of shockingly just sitting in you know, with a Bible under a tree and reading it ourselves is not going to do the, the, I think it was Spurgeon who said the Holy spirit is not, is this is not the first generation that the Holy spirit has worked in. And we really should take heed of that warning. I think that's great, man. And I really hope everybody who's listened to this has really gained something from it. Uh, I just kind of give you an opportunity now to just tell people where they can find you and, and, and uh, where they can listen to you talk about more awesome stuff like this. Sure. So um, right now, kind of my main project is the Reformed Brotherhood podcast, which uh, I do with my uh, brother-in-law, Jesse. And uh, we are part of the Society of Reformed Podcasters with Five for Fruit here and with uh, Reformed Outlook over uh, with Matt Butts and Chris Scheinbein. Shinbin? Shinbein? Shinbein. Shinbein. I've been calling him Shinbin for so long that it, I don't know how it's to do it. It's Matt's fault. It is Matt's fault. Um so that's kind of my main project. I'm also trying to ramp up my blogging activity. Uh, you mentioned earlier, reformedarsenal.com. Um, I try to write a little bit there when I can. Lately, it's been kind of current events things because those are the, just frankly, they're the easiest things to write about because your topic's kind of built for you. But I've got a pretty good backlog of stuff um, I'm trying to update. And you can catch me there as well. Awesome. Well, this has been a special edition episode of Five for Fruit, and we've been talking about how we as Reformed Christians are creedal, and we are Catholic, and church history belongs to us. Listen next time, guys. See you later. He's covered in amniotic fluid. The subject of the gospel's praise of apostles, armed with eye sockets, armpits, and nostrils. Who is this Jesus? God clothed in human weakness, super sweetness, and peace for the true believers. See the one who never tires, knocked out sleeping. See the source of eternal joy weeping. Which one can explain how the sun abundant with fame who made thunder and rain now has hunger pains? Huh? See the creator of water become thirsty on the cross when he saved from the slaughter the unworthy. My all should be sky high and I ought to just cry wide with water in my eyes.
when the author of life dies. Raised on the third God man, soul seeker. The hypostatic union, it gets no deeper. Pfeiffer Fruit is a proud member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Check out more members of the Society at reformedpodcasts.com. Subscribe, rate, and review Five for Fruit on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Leave Carrie a voicemail at 708-740-0098. And visit the website fiveforfruit.com to listen to past episodes and to read articles. Until next time. This is Five for Fruit, your five-minute fix for Reformed theology and practice.